This morning I'm going to do something that I have never done here at the chapel. Uh, normally you know that we take a break from our exposition of whatever we're normally preaching through, which right now happens to be Daniel. But typically I'll do an exposition of a psalm or a New Testament idea that kind of centers around the Lord's Supper. But in speaking in, with the elders and praying, we agreed that it might be good to take a Sunday to just give some instruction about the Lord's Supper specifically. Not just the few remarks that we give right before we invite you to come and share on the table, but to help us as the body of Christ remember and think through what it is we're doing when we share in the Lord's Supper. So this morning, our, my, the, the time is more than an exposition, is more, is more or less instruction on what are we doing? Why do we do this? Why is this important? Because I'm aware that in our midst there may be some new believers who, who know that we do the Lord's Supper but who don't really understand all the moving parts and why do we do it this way or what's really going on. Or there may be some of you who have been believers for a while now but have never really thought through what is this? What is this that we're doing? And, and why, why do we here at the chapel make a big deal of this on Sunday where we suspend other things that we do because this is front and center? Or, or maybe some of you do know all those things and it's just good to be reminded of what it is we're doing this morning and why this is important. So I pretty well figure that that covers everybody in this room. So, so we all are here by God's sovereign decree to think through the Lord's Supper this morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles out and turn them over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22, specifically starting in verse 14. As you well know, Luke is one of what's called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very identical in a lot of ways. There are some differences, of course. Uh, and then, of course, the Gospel of John is the fourth Gospel, which has many things that are unique to John's Gospel. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all capture what we're about to read together here in just a few moments. They each capture the scene which we call the institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, they're in all of them. But Luke's is the most comprehensive and the one that Paul really pulled from when he was given instruction regarding how the Corinthian church was, not, was failing and how they were doing their communion services. So when we are looking at this Luke, in, this Luke passage I chose it just because it's fuller. You could read similar themes and ideas in Mark at a, more briefly and similar themes and ideas in Matthew, however, more briefly. So this morning, the idea is we're going to read this passage of Scripture together here in just a moment. And then I want to take three basic questions that I want, I'm going to ask and answer with and for you as we kind of think through this particular topic. So the question I'm going to ask is, is what is the Lord's Supper? That's the first one. You need to understand what it is. Who is supposed to take the Lord's Supper? So who takes it? Who is to receive it? And why is it important? Or, or we could even use the word valuable. Why is it important? Why is it valuable? So those are the three questions I want to ask is what is it? Who takes it? And why is it important? So with those thoughts in mind, let's turn our attention now towards Luke's gospel. This, the institution of the Lord's Supper, that story begins in verse 14. So beloved of God, hear again the infallible and errant word of God. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. So in the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, open this word to us this morning as we think through what it means to commune with you around this sacred table that you have given us. I pray that you would give us clarity. I pray that you would give us wisdom. And I pray that you would give us insight. And that we would see that there is great delight in this table. There is great joy at this table. There is hope and peace and redemption at this table. Because what this table symbolizes, we understand the elements themselves don't provide those things. They point us to the one who does. They are symbols of the one who does, your son, Jesus Christ. And so thank you for that. We ask you to bless this time of study. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. So the first thing we want to really think through this morning is, so you have this initial institution from Jesus. Jesus does this with his disciples, knowing that the cross is imminent, so he understands his body is literally about to be given over. He understands that his blood is literally about to be spilled out, but he's bringing these down into the sphere of, our, of understanding for you and for me. So what he's doing is he's saying, this is going to happen. This is on the horizon. This is coming. Now, why? what is the value of that to you? Well, that's exactly what he's doing for us in the Lord's Supper. He's, he's helping us understand there's a covenantal framework that's in here, there's a redemptive framework that's in here, and there is, there, there's a vital message of hope so that if his disciples know that he's going to be killed, he's going to be crucified, but he's saying, hey, there's a silver lining here. There's actually a beautiful silver lining to this. This death is necessary, and it's necessary for you to have life. And so that's the backdrop of what we're looking at here. And so when we, come to, when we come down to this, okay, so this is there. We've got the backdrop. We've got the history. Jesus is, is getting ready to, to be crucified. Judas has already decided he's going to betray him to the Romans or to the, to the Jews who will give him over to the Romans. So now we ask, he's instituted this. What is it that we're looking at here? Well, historically in the church, it was called either an ordinance or a sacrament. Both of those words are kind of getting at the same thing. But it's this idea that it's this right, this thing that we engage in, however often we do it, for the purposes of being obedient to this first and foremost. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So at, at first, or on the base level, we're looking at this ordinance, this this ordinance that Jesus instituted that we're supposed to do on a regular basis by his command. So this is not just any old thing that we do. This is not just a nice thing to do to give us some ritual in the church. This comes directly from Scripture. Jesus tells us that we are to participate in this supper regularly. Now, we can get into what we mean by regularly and different, different denominations and different churches translate that differently. Some are do it every Sunday. Some do it once a quarter. We do it here once a month. And we believe that's satisfactory that we regularly come back to the table once a month to do exactly what Jesus commanded us to do. To come have this meal together. To celebrate, to participate, and to commemorate. To celebrate to participate, and to commemorate. So that's what we're doing when we're coming back round to the Lord's Supper, the ordinance. Now, I'm going to talk about the other ordinance for a second because it's bears, it bears <laughs> uh, talking about here. 
When we think about the Lord's Supper, we need to understand this is a meal for believers. And we're going to come back around to this here in just a minute about who, it, who it's for. So I'm going to come back to that. But when we think about baptism, what is baptism? Well, baptism is symbolic of entrance into God's covenant people, into God's church. When we, someone is being baptized, we know that they are publicly identifying with Christ, for one. They're saying publicly, I am with Jesus. But they're also saying an inward change has happened in me. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and now I have been raised up in Christ. And Paul uses that beautiful picture in Colossians, talk about being lowered with Christ in the water and death and raised up to new life. And so when we think about baptism, we think about this person who says, yes, I'm in the family. I'm a part of your family now. I am in covenant with Jesus. I am living with him and for him, with you and for you to some degree. That's what the baptist person is saying. It's, they're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm coming into the covenant. I'm showing solidarity with you. Now you and I are one. We're a family. We're together. We have this bond that, that connects us that is otherworldly. We're not, we're not together because we share so much in common. We're together because the same banner of love resides over us, right? We've come into this covenant of love with Christ. And so baptism proclaims this to the world. It shows our solidarity with God and his people. I've said this, it's done publicly. There should not be private baptisms because it is a declaration. It is a declaration. I have repented, I have believed, I have trusted. And so let me say this. When we think about baptism historically, what we would say is that baptism typically would proceed when you take the Lord's Supper. Here's the reason why. The Bible has no category, or let me put it like this. The Bible doesn't speak of unbaptized people receiving the supper because in biblical periods of in biblical history, it would have been unheard of. If you're going to join the church, you're going to be baptized. When you join the church, you're going to be baptized. When you make profession of faith in Christ, you're going to be baptized. And if we look at this covenant meal, which I'm going to expound on here in just a minute and recognize this is a meal for the family, historically, those who had publicly declared, I'm in the family, would then take the meal with the family. So the ordinances go together, right? They actually weave together nicely in what they're designed to do. One says, hey, I'm in the family, I'm with you, I'm your, I'm your brother, I'm your sister. And the other one says, as we eat and as we drink, we say, well, hey, brother or sister, we're still in the same family. We, are in the, we share the covenant. We are here for the glory of Christ and for the mutual benefit of one another and to glorify God. So it's this constant of we're looking around in communion with one another as we share the cup and the bread. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I haven't been baptized and I take communion every time, I'm not condemning you. I'm really not. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, not trying to make you feel ashamed, not trying to make you feel bad, not trying to tell you don't come to the table. But can I say something to you? You should get baptized. If you are a believer in the Lord, trusting in him alone for salvation, and you're linking yourself to a local church, why not get baptized? Get baptized. Go ahead and get baptized and say, hey, I'm with you. I, I, I'm, I'm your brother. I'm your sister. Because I, I love baptisms. I love the Lord's Supper. And I love God's church. And I think that when we look at, I don't think, when we look at Scripture, Jesus gives the command to baptize Go and baptize all nations, making them disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The command to be baptized is there. It comes right out of the Great Commission. In fact, I'll just 
instead of just trying to quote it to you, I will read it for effect because I want you to hear this is, this is God's words, God's word. Go therefore, he says in 28, 19, Matthew, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Beloved of God, make disciples is imperative. And then you have this, that's an express command. Then you have this, what does it mean to make disciples? Well, at the very least, beginning-wise, it means that we're baptizing them. It means we're baptizing people who are disciples. So if you've not been baptized yet, and you are a member in the household of God, let me encourage you, be baptized. Come and, and declare publicly with us that you are one. So when we think about the Lord's Supper, so we kind of got a little bit, it's an ordinance, it's a thing we do regularly, that historically, typically, it would have been people who had declared through baptism their membership with the people of God who receive it. What are some common names that we hear it called? So perhaps you've ever heard it called the Eucharist. Some people call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. Some people just call it communion. Some people just call it the Lord's Supper. Some people abbreviate it even further, further and just say the Supper. Scripturally, because of, it says he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. So scripturally, historically, what the followers of Christ, you turn over to Acts 2, very familiar passage of Scripture, you'll see something here that is important for us to understand. So in Acts chapter 2, when he's getting into the fellowship of the believers in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, he says something in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers in 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I want to stop right there. So scripture in the New Testament, especially with regard to Pauline literature, so a few, a few places in Acts, about three of them, and then a, and some more places in 1 Corinthians, we're only going to look at a few of these today, refer to the Lord's Supper as the breaking of bread. So when we look at it, Eucharist, where, let me tell you where that comes from. The word Eucharist is just a transliteration of the Greek word eucharizo, which is give thanks, when he had given thanks. It's actually, that word is very beautiful. It's a combination of two words that form the thanksgiving. The, the, the performative you in Greek means good, and the cognate of that charizo is charis, grace. So we're talking about a good grace. When we think about the communion as the Eucharist, yes, it's derived from Jesus giving thanks. That's what that word means in the Greek. But really, what it is, is the embodiment of that word. It is a good grace from God. Why is it a good grace from God, Brad? Does, is something magical happening at this table? Absolutely not. The beauty and the miracle, if you're in Christ this morning, has already happened. We are here to remember to commemorate, to commemorate, participate, and the other one that I said a few minutes ago. But it's also called communion. Why do we call it communion? Because there's something unifying about it. We're supposed to come in unity to this table, to gather around this table as a body of believers, not as individuals, to receive and to be blessed by the beauty of this table. When you look at, I just read two passages from Acts chapter 2. If you turn over to Acts chapter 20, and you look at verse 7, so Acts chapter, not, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 
we read, first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day and prolong the speech until midnight. Of course, that's when you have the fellow Eutychus who falls asleep and falls to his death. But So in Acts chapter 2, we've read the breaking of bread. In Acts chapter 20, we read of the breaking of bread. One more place that I'm going to come back to, so you don't have to turn there just yet. I'm just going to read it real quickly, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, because Paul says here, um, no, I'm sorry, 1016, not 11, 1016, that threw me off. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ. So we're going to come back around to that here in just a minute, but I just want us to get to, Paul gives instruction we see in Luke and Acts about the breaking of bread, so we understand this, what is it. This breaking of bread is a, is, a, is a meal that we share, but it has covenant implications because it's saying that we are in the family of Christ so that we are living in covenant with Christ. And Paul kind of expands on that a little bit and uses words like participation, which we're going to come back to here in just a moment. But, but what we're saying is, what the Lord's Supper is, is it's a, it's a community meal that draws us to a single table for the purpose of being done bodily among the believers together. Now, Brad, are there times when someone could do a private communion? Sure, if it's a homebound person who's sick and can't get out of bed and they want to receive communion, yeah. But typically, communion should be with the family of God. It's meant to be that. We're meant to share it together. It's also a witness to the world that as we come to this table, we're saying, we're in the family. We're in this covenant. We come to one table as a witness of our unity in Christ and our commitment to him. And so when we look at this, we are confirming to one another. We're confirming when we take it. I'm in the family. However imperfectly, I try to live faithful to Christ that I value the truth of what these things represent. I value the cross. I value the resurrection. I value all the scripture that leads us to Christ and all the scripture that leads us back to God again and again. We are coming and we are confirming to one another, we are in this family, we are with you. And beloved, when we look at it like that, it can't become flippant or trite because we're renewing a covenant every, every time we take it. Yes. Yes, Lord, I'm with you. Yes, Lord, I'm in your family. Yes, Lord, I'm relying on your promises. Yes, Lord, I am trusting in your salvation. Let, yes, Lord, my merit is not me. My merit is in the body and the blood of Jesus. Yes, Lord, my hope is not in me. My hope is in the cross and the resurrection. We're saying all these things when we come together. And so, beloved, when we look at it for what it is, we have to stand in awe of what the Lord's Supper is. Second question, who takes the Lord's Supper? Well, relatively easy to answer. Jesus said, we just read in that Luke passage that you do this in remembrance of me, right? That's what he says. He says that in verse 19, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the, the, right off the bat, those who take this supper are those who have some sort of remembrance of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't merely mean cognitive. It's not just those who call Christ to mind. That's not what he means. It means those who are living with and in and for him, those who are with his, with his people, those who are his people, those who know him are the ones who participate. 
as we said, as I said a moment ago, historically, would have been people who had already declared their faith publicly through baptism, but what we'll say is it's people who are believers in the risen Savior. So when we look at it, what that means is if we can say, okay, believers should take it, well, then who shouldn't? And when is it inappropriate or when is it appropriate to not take the supper? And there are a few different categories in this particular vein that we can look at. Well, for one, when we, people who are unsure of their faith or have not committed themselves to Jesus should not take the supper. Um, that's not my rule. That is the, the y'all have heard me, those of you who have attended here have heard me say this many times in this very, from this very platform because right here in 1 Corinthians, part of the uh, Lord's Supper liturgy in chapter 11, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread, verse 27, and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so when we look at this, we understand, hey, that, that, that's what you would call a, a timeout warning. Timeout. Where is my heart? Am I, am I, am I sure I'm in the Lord? Do I know Jesus? Now, that doesn't mean, hey, do you stumble through life? That, that's not, we'll get to that here in just a minute. What it does mean, though, is if you know or you're relatively sure you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need to take the supper, not until you've received salvation. There's another category for those who I would recommend not taking the supper, at least until some work is done. It's a category where I would say, yes, you may be a genuine brother or sister in the Lord, but there's something happening with you and in your life that is perhaps might not be, might prevent you from taking the supper. Brad, what might an example of that be? Perhaps you're at odds with a brother or sister in the local assembly. You know that there is relationship turmoil that hard words were spoken and not been reconciled or harsh words or critique or so, there is some sort of relational division there that you know is not made right, that you've not tried to make right and that he or she has not tried to make right. Let me, let me instruct you here. You probably should refrain taking the supper in that moment because this is a supper of unity. It doesn't, it's not a supper of we all have to agree on every single thing. This is a supper of u- relational unity in Christ. And when there is division there, we need to consider it very seriously because even Jesus in speaking about anger in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. It's different. The context is different. I understand. But there's a principle here that works and that stays the same, that we should be striving for relational, relational unity. Now, let me tell you this. Perhaps you are aware of relational discord and you have tried to be reconciled to this brother or sister and to no avail. You have offered, you have made attempts, you have sought them out and they continue to stonewall or avoid. At that moment, I think you are clear to receive the supper because you've done all within your conscience to be reconciled to a brother or sister. As the old saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You can't make people be reconciled with you. You have to trust them to the Holy Spirit. In those instances where you've made attempts, I would say, 
be free to have the supper. When's another example that we shouldn't take the Lord's Supper? Well, when there's a, a, a rotting sin that's there that has not been repented of. If you're letting a sin fester in your lives and, and, you, and you haven't sought repentance from that sin, then, beloved, let me encourage you to think very carefully before you take the supper. Again, I could point us back to 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29 about taking uh, it in an unworthy manner and wanting to be careful that we don't put ourselves in a position of letting our sin go and it being okay and continuing to come to the table saying, my life is good and I'm good with you. I'm not out of accord with you. Um, so what are, what are you saying, Brad? Well, here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's very few reasons that you can take the Lord's Supper. I, I don't want you to hear me say that. What I do want you to hear me say is, this is such a profoundly important thing that we are doing that I and the Scriptures implore us to be very, very thoughtful when we come to the table. When we come to the house of the Lord, when we come to preach and teach, we should be thoughtful, of course. But you people who are like me and your faith is imperfect and your relationships get discombobulated and you get messed up with people and you lose it with others and you say the wrong things and do the wrong things and you're broken by that and you're coming to Christ in repentance, then brother or sister, this supper's for you. It is for you. It is for you to be reminded that our wholeness is in Christ, that we are, have been made whole and right in Christ. And this is where I think parents of young children, examine your children well. Examine them well before you place this burden on them. We trust you fathers and mothers to do that, but make sure their hearts understand, at least on the level that they can, what they're receiving when they take the Lord's Supper. So it's a call for examination. Lastly, why is this important? Well, I've really hit on, on this, but it bears repeating. Why is this valuable? Because as baptism says, I am with the Lord. The Lord's Supper says, I remain with the Lord every time we take it. I remain with the Lord. I'm still the Lord's. Despite my imperfections, despite my failings, I am the Lord. I am the Lord's. So this meal, it unifies us under one banner. What is that? That we believe the same essentials. Right? That there are essentials of the faith that you and I share, that maybe we don't parse it out the same way, but essentially we believe the same things. Now, could I ask you at this point to turn back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16? This is a powerful statement that Paul makes here. This is in the context of idolatry. He begins a few verses before chapter 16. Therefore, beloved, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he makes the statement in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then he goes on to express the unity because there's one bread and we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. And I'll stop right there. Verse 16, when he says, is it not a participation in, interesting word here that he uses. Perhaps you've heard a pastor or someone preaching give the word koinonia. 
That's exactly the word he uses right there, the word koinonia. Koinonia, fellowship. That's how we normally would translate it. We have fellowship together. I love that the ESV uses participation here. I'm not sure how it's translated in other, in other translations. But it is participation. <laughs> what, what they're saying is, because, or, or the, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? You know what the idea behind it is? So have in common with, that we have in common with Christ, his blood, and then kind of more aggressively, we're aligning ourselves with Christ. So why is it valuable? Because when we partake of the bread and a cup, what we're saying is, I, am, I have a fellowship in his blood, I have aligned myself with the truth that this blood represents, and I will live the life that this blood calls me to live. And so it's this more than just, hey, we're, we, you know, it's not just a memory. Of course, we are commemorating. But it's calling us into a life, and we're saying, I'm living that life. I want to live that life. That's what's happening. And so you have this beautiful picture of we have fellowship or we have in common with the blood of Christ and, 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 the, and the body of Christ now is the thing that links us together. And so when we receive the supper, it is a unique experience that Christ gave us, something that, that he imparted to us and said, do this. And there is spiritual food and spiritual drink and spiritual nourishment for us when we commune together around the table with Christ. What it says is, I'm identified with his body and his blood. What it says is, I'm saved by grace. Elements aren't magical. We're not Roman Catholic. We do not believe that they become the body and the blood somehow magically when you take them. They don't need to do that. That's not their purpose. Their purpose was always meant to be a sign that, that pointed to something else, namely the power, love, beauty, majesty, truth, redemption, salvation of Jesus. What we have before us is the image that Christ gave us of a good sacrifice, body and blood given. This is our family meal. It's valuable because we come in our diversity to the unity of Christ. We come in our diversity to the unity of Christ. It's valuable because it's a testimony of our faith in Jesus. The supper says, I'm in God's family, and I love them, and I love him. That's why it's valuable. Beloved, I hope this has been instructive for you and helpful. It was for me as I studied through it, because what we're about to do here in just a few moments is valuable. It is valuable, and it's meant to be an encouragement and a commemoration of hope for us. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time to be together to think through the supper. Thank you for what the supper represents, and I pray that as we take it here in just a few minutes that you would, your spirit would stir our hearts afresh, that you would that you would bless this time together, this, that we would feel a sense of our unity in you and communion in you, and that your grace would renew our minds and hearts. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.